Good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. Follow me with a 90-year-old man bent with the weight of his years, slow of step, with stooped and rounded shoulders. It's early in the morning, and he's in his home. We note that he sits down and he picks up a cello. The man and the instrument merge. He plays on for four or five hours. When he plays, the years seem to fall off of this man, who is obviously practicing with a fervor younger than his 90 years of age. Why on earth, comes the question, would Pablo Casal, at age 90, continue to practice when it seems he has perfected the instrument of the cello? Someone once asked him this, and he said, and I quote, I practice because I have the slight impression that I might be making a little progress. I love this statement because his attitude reminds us of how careful we need to give attention to the progress and the movement forward of our faith. But I assure you, a simple attitude of confidence in one's progress will not be enough for your faith to move forward. A simple reminder daily of you and I doing the right things concerning our Christian faith will not be enough to move our faith forward. What does it take to truly engage with the truth of Jesus Christ so that we can certainly know how our faith moves forward? May I share with you a reminder from the Gospel of Mark to focus on the heart of Jesus, his glory, and his priority. Welcome to our study series, Forward. We enter into chapters 8 through 10, where over and over again the episodes unfold for us his heart, his glory, and his priority. So let's begin with Mark chapter 8, and let's focus first upon his heart, so that with this focus, our faith can move forward. Yes, you may feel like you're making some progress. You may be like Pablo, who would say, you know, I think I'm doing okay. But let's focus upon the heart of Christ. Let's po focus upon his glory, and then let's focus upon what he prioritizes. And then with those divine metrics, as I like to reference, let's consider how our faith moves forward. So we're beginning with the heart of Jesus, and we begin in Mark chapter 8. In Mark 8, we begin in verse 1. In those days, he was with the large crowd again, and they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, Now hear the words of Jesus. Mark chapter 8, verse 2. I feel compassion for the people. Now let's pause here for a moment and enter into the context, humanly speaking and geographically speaking. When we last visited the narrative of Mark, we understand from chapter 7, verse 31, that, that Jesus and his disciples had traveled through the region of Tyre, around the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. Now, in chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples remain in that region, but they're in a wilderness. They're in a distant place 
surrounded by areas that would be of heavy Gentile population, and the crowd presses in to hear him teach. And much as we discovered in a recent episode, you and I know as the feeding of the 5,000, this crowd presses in to hear Jesus, and they stay with him three day, three days. I imagine they're so engaged with his truths that perhaps many of them forgot that they did not have adequate provisions for this length of a, of a teaching on the truths of the kingdom. And Jesus said in verse two, I feel compassion. So we open up the, the episodes of the Markan narrative in chapter eight to consider first the feeding of the 4,000. You find this recorded in verses one through 21. Now this episode stands distinctly different from the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, in verses 19 and 20 of Mark 8, Jesus himself will give evidence of the distinction between two separate multitude feedings, one of the 5,000 and what would be a heavily Jewish population, and then one of 4,000 in the Decapolis, a heavy Gentile population. But concerning the heart of Christ, much like the narrative of the feeding of the 5,000 that's recorded in the Gospels, uh, we come to the feeding of the 4,000 recorded here and then in Matthew, referencing in a significant way the heart of Christ. Listen to the heart of Jesus in verse 2. He said of himself, I feel compassion. Well, this will become reminiscent of John's gospel concerning the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus wept because the people seemed to be sheep without a shepherd. Here, Jesus feels compassion for the multitude. This word for compassion comes from an old Greek term, splagnizomai, meaning the deep part of one's of one's being, the, the visceral, the, the gut, to use a, a brass term. This references a very, a very deep and stirring movement of love and, and compassion and sympathy and empathy. This is our Lord speaking. This is our Lord expressing that, that gut-wrenching compassion that moves him to act, yes, fully God, fully man. But in his own soul, in his own vessel, he becomes physically moved with compassion. And then we understand that the story seems to have a parallel with the other multitude feedings. Uh, the individual sat down. Someone brought a lunch. This time we are, we are told of seven loaves. And then as the people sat down, there were also some small fish. Jesus blessed them. You see this in verse 6 and 7. And in verse 8, they ate and were satisfied, and seven baskets were left over. Now, these baskets, because of the Greek term, actually represent a larger vessel than the smaller wicker baskets uh, referenced in the Greek language of, of the feeding of the 5,000. Here, the word is totally different and references a large roped-made basket, very similar to the basket we read of in, in Acts where Paul was lowered down over the wall uh, in Damascus. And so here there were seven large baskets left over. Now after this miracle had happened, the 
the crowd broke away, uh, distinctly different from the feeding of the 5,000 where the crowd seemed to press in to make Jesus king. Now, Jesus and his disciples after this feeding, much in keeping with the rest of the Markan narrative, uh, uh, entered a vessel and sailed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when they arrived in the uh, district of Dalmanutha, which is probably near Magdalene, which is probably the western uh, bank of the Sea of Galilee, the Pharisees came out to meet him. Now, the, the geography would indicate that not far from this location would be Bethsaida, where there was likely a headquarters located for the Pharisees. So they were in proximity to anticipate the arrival of Christ and to come out and to entreat him. So the Pharisees came as the disciples and Jesus disembarked and the Pharisees begin to seek from him a sign from heaven. And Jesus deeply sighed. This references another expression of the heart of Christ. He sighed out of, out of a real deep distress over the spirit of the Pharisees. And then Jesus said, why are you still looking for a sign? And I will tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus knew the Pharisees were seeking a, an opportunity to, to trap him, an opportunity to, to have an occasion to accuse him, like they did in, in Mark uh, chapter 3, where they accused his miraculous powers of coming from Satan himself. And so the Pharisees began to look for other opportunities to make like accusations. And likely the Pharisees were building off of some, some Old Testament scriptures that would indicate uh, a, a reference, a sign that would be heavenly, manifested in the heavens. But here Jesus said, no such sign is given because you're seeking with wrong motives. And Jesus was deeply disturbed. Do you see the heart of our Savior? He was moved with compassion for the crowd. He was deeply disturbed in the uh, false motivation from the Pharisees to seek him out. We see evidence of the heart of our Savior, and we see evidence of his compassion toward those whose hearts are open to him. We see his distress and his sighing. The word is asterneroxus, which means from the Greek, a deep negative stirring that would show uh, disdain and, and even a blatant aggravation. And Jesus was distressed at the Pharisees' superficial desire to see a sign. And so we see again the heart of our Savior, uh, oh, so, so compassionate and so sympathetic to, to those who were in a physical need, but totally, totally uh, resisting the heart that is superficial and the heart that is actually seeking to, to manipulate the name and the message of the ministry of Jesus. Now in verse 14 forward, we see that Jesus and his disciples once again boarded the vessel to sail forward. And Jesus taught his disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In Matthew's account of the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus mentioned the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but here he mentions the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. There, there seemed to be some uh, unusual alliance between the Pharisees and Herod's rule. And so Mark emphatically, led by the Holy Spirit, uh, reveals Jesus' words to his disciples. Watch out for this leaven. Uh, the leaven represented 
a, a spiritual analogy of what would be wicked and impure that could infest and affect the entire lump of dough. Jesus said, be careful of this wickedness that can be pervasive. Well, the disciples heard leaven and they thought they were still in a conversation about the bread that Jesus had just multiplied and the disciples had forgotten to bring enough bread for everyone in the vessel. And Jesus said, no. And, and listen to the words of Jesus to the disciples from verse 17 forward. Do, do, do you not have eyes that you can't see? Do you not have ears that you can't hear? He, he even referenced uh, their hardened hearts. Have, have you, uh, have you not understood what has taken place through the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000? Did you not see what was left over? Jesus again was teaching his disciples in both of the feedings of the five and the 4,000 that his provisions, his living bread, his truth that would give spiritual sustenance was what the disciples should truly hunger for in their lives. And Jesus in verse 21 said, do you not understand? So let me show you this in this opening narrative. We see the heart of Jesus and his compassion for those who are hungry and leaning into him. We see his heart of disdain for the superficial acts of the Pharisees. And we see his heart for his disciples with the question, do you not understand? Oh, he had a desire to meet the physical needs of those who were in need. Jesus had a desire to walk in to the, to the areas of life that were without. Jesus also had a heart to argue against superficial uh, responses to him and erroneous responses to him. And Jesus also had a heart for his own disciples that they would grow and they would learn and they would understand. We see the heart of our Savior vividly and clearly. And the importance of our embrace of this text is to remember his heart for us. Wherever there exists a need in your life, he has a heart for that need. He desires to see that need fulfilled. If you have a heart that has been hardened by legalism and a superficial desire to, to uh, lean into Christ for your own benefit, well, he has a heart for that too, but it's a heart of resistance and a heart of correction. And then he has a heart for his own followers, that his own followers would grow in understanding his truth as spiritual sustenance and that that spiritual sustenance would be a priority for you and for me all. Do not miss the compassion of our Lord. Now let's move from the feeding of the 4,000 to the very next episode in verse 22, wherein Jesus and his disciples arrive at Bethsaida and they are brought a blind man. And the, the man was brought to Jesus and those who brought him implored him, Jesus, to touch the blind man. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought Jesus out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, but, but they seem like trees walking around. Then again, Jesus laid his hand on the eyes of the blind man and looked intently. And then the man responded that he could see everything clearly. And he was restored. And Jesus sent him home and said, do not enter the village. Again, we see the heart of Jesus revealed, not in his compassion for the multitude, but in his compassion for the one. Notice three very distinct characteristics of this miracle. Jesus, taking the blind man by the hand, verse 23, led him out of the village. You see, Jesus understood that in Bethsaida, there was a desire to see the miracles of Christ, but from a motivation of sensationalism. And so Jesus would not feed that false sense 
of desiring miracles and brought the blind man out of the city. Jesus desired to have compassion on him without the distraction of the crowd. And then Jesus asked him after spitting on his eyes and touching his eyes through this physical process Jesus had, Jesus had used before, not to indicate that there was some supernatural property in the spittle or in other occasions from the mud in the spittle, but simply Jesus desired to see or to have the blind man to understand that Jesus was actually administering a touch with, with no other properties at work. And Jesus spit upon his eye, touched him. The man had some of his sight. And then Jesus did so again, and the man could see clearly. Why the gradual restoration of sight? Because Jesus desired that the blind man would understand Jesus' control of the situation and that Jesus was moving him to a full place of complete, restoration. And then Jesus prohibited him to go back into the city for the same reasons as he brought the man out, that there would be no sensationalism built because those individuals in Bethsaida, as this present history would teach, were not ready to offer to Jesus honor to his messianic dignity. And so there are three distinct characteristics. Jesus bringing the blind man out of the city, giving him progressive touches to show full restoration, and then prohibiting him to fall into the distraction of that human sensationalism or a desire for the sensational. Jesus brought healing to the individual. So here in these, these two episodes that open up chapter 8, Jesus had compassion for the multitude, and he had, he had such distinct and intentional involvement with one solitary life. Jesus cares for the masses, but he cares for you. And he desires to have that same distinct compassion overflowing in your life. John Ortberg, beloved pastor and author, reminds us that Jesus' compassion for the poor and the sick has historically led to institutions for lepers, beginning of modern-day hospitals that, that bear names like the Good Samaritan and the Good Shepherd. All throughout modern history, we see evidence of movements of charitable institutions motivated by the stories of the compassion of Jesus Christ. And here we see the heart of Christ motivating our faith to trust him more, to respond and surrender to him more so that indeed our faith can move forward. Now let's move to a third episode. And for this episode, we are now brought from the heart of Christ into an understanding of his glory. Take a moment to look at the glory of the Christ. And we pick up in verse 27 and we read of Peter's confession of the Christ. Now this episode that focuses upon the glory of Christ begins with questioning and then a confession and then teaching about surrender. Here we have what I love referencing as the messiahship that leads to discipleship. One's discipleship should become motivated by our Lord's Messiahship. Notice how this happened. First, as verse 27 opens, Jesus and his disciples begin to journey itinerantly through the villages of Caesarea Philippi. They're actually in territory that up to this point has been foreign to them. And in this foreign movement where the disciples are, are likely anticipating what would come from unfamiliar territory, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them. He actually questions them as if the emphasis would be on testing them. Who do people say that I am? The verb question is in an imperfect tense in the Greek, indicating that Jesus 
was continually asking them, who do people say that I am? Now, there were several specific answers from the disciples. The disciples said, some say you're Elijah. No, uh, uh, some say you're John the Baptist resurrected. Uh, Some say you're one of the prophets of old. In fact, from this same story in Matthew's account, chapter 16, verse 4, there were many the disciples said thinking that he was Jeremiah. Malachi, the prophet, testified that Elijah would come. So many thought that literally Jesus was actually Elijah who had returned. And so there were several occasions where even in John's gospel, chapter one, indicate that many in the crowd had different ideas of Jesus, perhaps conditioned by their own thoughts. And that's not too dissimilar to today. Sometimes people can only see Jesus at the limit of their own thoughts of who Christ is. And here Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And then comes the confession for Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. Matthew's gospel records Jesus asking Peter and Peter responding, you're the son of the living God. Luke's gospel chapter nine records Peter saying, you're the Christ of God. All this confession becomes powerful as recognizing the true messiahship of Jesus. His, his true his true presence of God in the flesh. And so Peter made that confession. And then look in verses 34 and following concerning the surrender of the heart that has met the Messiah. You see, Jesus then took Peter aside because Jesus commented that he will not long from now be killed and arrested. And and Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Jesus took Peter aside and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not having the mind of God, but man's mind. The Greek word phroneo means to have a thought that actually promotes action. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me. Your thoughts are not of God. You're being conditioned by your own whims that are reflective of the enemy. Jesus actually said to the chief tempter, Satan, in the wilderness temptations, get behind me, Satan. And he said so here because Peter's uh, fleshly prohibition of Jesus not having to die contended with the gospel and the truth of Christ, even as Satan himself has contended in the wilderness temptations. And so Jesus began to teach the disciples the heart of surrender in response to his Messiahship. And you see that all the way through uh, to verse 38. We see this beautiful imagery of the glory of Christ. And even though man tried to contend with that glory from his own thoughts, the glory of Christ was manifested as Jesus taught how, how he himself will come and give himself and will die and, and how the disciples of Christ must follow that lead and serve him because of who he is as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now look at one other episode concerning the glory of Christ. We know this as the transfiguration. Chapter nine opens. And then we are told, and Mark's narrative moving a bit quickly, more than the other narratives. uh, Jesus was saying to them, I say to you, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God in its full power. Now there can be reference here to what is about to happen. And this also references his coming death and resurrection and ascension. 
But here, six days later, after the episodes in chapter 8, Jesus brought three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to a high mountain. And before them, he was transfigured. Let's ask three quick questions. What did these three disciples see? Who did they see? And why did they see this? First, what did they see? According to verses 2 through 3, they saw Jesus and his whole personage change, not in his identity of who he was, but but how they saw him. His garment became radiant white. His face shone with a splendor that was incomparable to the splendor of Moses that these three had likely read about in the law of Moses. All the radiance was brilliant. His deity shone forth. Their incomprehension of who he was became for a moment an ocular manifestation so that they could see the Christ. And in in Matthew's gospel, reference is given to the fact that a voice was heard, God himself saying, this is my son. And then the voice of God said, listen to him. What did they see? They saw the radiance of the deity of the Christ. Who did they see? They saw Jesus. And then appearing with Jesus was Moses and Elijah. These two prominent figures of the old dispensation, the law and the utterances of the prophecy foreshadowing the Christ actually stood with Jesus and actually gave focus to the Christ. The reason God's voice rang out, listen to him, was to say you no longer listen to the, to the, just to the prophets and just to the law. Jesus has come to fulfill. And oh, how Peter, James, and John needed to see this encounter. In Peter's epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, he will later speak of this encounter as being transformative in his own life as one who would lead the church. And certainly this would be an impact for James and for John as well. Oh, what did they see? The transfiguration of Christ. Who did they see? Jesus with that Old Testament dispensation, Moses and Elijah. Why did they see this? So that they would know the essence of Christ to fulfill all things and to be the one who would rule forever. They caught a glimpse of this majesty. And you read about this all the way through to verse 13. They saw the glory of Christ. Peter confessed the glory, but oh, he fell short of understanding until he saw the glory of Christ. Ours today is to recognize first the compassion of Jesus, his heart for us, but second, his glory, his rule and his reign and his majesty over all things, all the glory of Christ. On that day, on that high mount, some say Mount Tabor, and in the third century, Origen wrote of Mount Tabor as being the place of the transfiguration, whether it be there or Mount Hermon or, or whatever the location may have been, that high mountaintop was that place where Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of the glory of Christ that would be fully manifested forever and is manifested for, for, for all eternity. The glory of Christ is revealed and and we, we behold his glory. We worship him in spirit and in truth. I pray that you're responding to Jesus because of who he is, his glory and his rule and his reign over all things, all the beautiful glory of our Lord. One of the most uh, prolific songwriters of church history 
would be Fanny Crosby, who lost her eyesight at an early age because of a medical accident, but wrote over 9,000 spiritual songs and hymns. And this blind servant of the Lord had a clearer perspective of the glory of Christ than many of us do today with 2020 vision. Some of her hymns ring out, Visions of Rapture Now Burst on My Sight. The title of that hymn, Blessed Assurance. Near the cross, I will watch, ever trusting in the cross. Oh, again and again, watching and waiting, looking above. Again, from the hymn, Blessed Assurance. We see over and over again these these songs that ring out a spiritual perspective of the glory of Christ. I pray that you have not forgotten or ignored the glory of Christ, but that his glory would guide your devotion, your heart, and your worship. Now, finally, as we come to a conclusion of of chapters eight and nine, focus third on the priority of Jesus. We've seen his heart, his glory. Now focus on what he has prioritized. There are three short episodes here, and I'll just move through these fairly quickly because I would desire that you would see, along with the heart of Jesus and his glory, that you would see that which he has prioritized. Oh, do not miss that which our Lord, our Savior, has prioritized. In chapter 9, we now come to verse 14. And when they came back to the disciples, meaning when James... Peter and John came down from Mount Tabor, perhaps, with Jesus. They came and saw a large crowd, and there was indeed a commotion. Jesus asked in verse 16, what are you discussing? Now, some of the scribes had engaged with the disciples, the remaining group of followers who were not with Jesus on the mount, and they had a seemingly a very disruptive conversation. When Jesus asked all that were involved in this discussion, probably a fairly heated discussion, what was happening, a father from the crowd came and said, teacher, I brought my son who's possessed with a dark spirit. I brought him to your disciples and asked if they would cast him out, verse 18, but they could not do it. (laughs) This demonic spirit as described here caused this young boy to fall to the ground, to throw himself into a fire, into water, to hurt himself. This was a a dangerous and and a a very dark situation where these seizures overtook this boy, uh, prompted by a dark spirit within him. Jesus said when he learned that his disciples could not cast out the demon, oh, you believing, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So the boy was brought to Jesus. And when he saw him, when the evil spirit saw Jesus, uh, the boy was thrown to the ground and began rolling around and foaming. And then the evil spirit left him. And this is what happened. The boy's father cried out, I do believe. And Jesus said, yes, all things are possible if you believe. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. And he left the boy. The boy was laying there as if dead. And then uh, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. You see, this father had a small faith, but he had faith. And he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus responded, and his son was freed of this dark, demonic spirit. Jesus raised him up. He was healed. And when Jesus had come into a house where they were staying, his disciples began asking Jesus, why couldn't we drive him out? Jesus said, this comes about, 
by prayer. Matthew's gospel would say prayer and fasting. The emphasis would be what has happened is of the spirit, not of man. What has happened is spiritual. This far contrasts what Jesus described of his disciples in chapter 6, verse 1 through 13, when they were given the power to do, do these acts. But here, they were powerless because evidently they had begun to rely on their flesh and their own knowledge and not the presence of Christ and not that which was spiritual. Jesus said, this can only come out by prayer, meaning when you grow in spirit, when you grow in that which is spiritual, then the power is yours. But, but this can't be unless... I am with you unless the Spirit is with you. And so again, we see the priority of Christ in this episode. And the priority references that which Jesus desires for us, that his presence through the Spirit would empower us to be involved in his ministry and in his work. Now let's move to a second episode. In verses 30 through 37, they went to uh, throughout Galilee and Jesus was teaching his disciples and said, the son of man must be delivered. He'll be killed, but he'll be raised in three days. Oh, they did not understand this. And they were afraid and they came to Capernaum and they were there in a house and he began to question them. Why are, what were you discussing on the way? And the disciples said, we were discussing who would be greatest in your kingdom. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 to them and, um, he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last. Verse 36, Jesus picked up a child and he set him before them and taking the child in his arms, he said, whoever receives a child like this receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me, but the father who sent me. Oh, what an amazing statement in this teaching of Jesus foretelling his death and picking up the child and saying, this becomes the essence of the kingdom. And then focuses on the father's identity instead of his, exemplifies and announces the kingdom. So the priority of Jesus is not just that we will be empowered by his spirit to serve with him, but that we would understand his kingdom, not just his work, but his kingdom. That child represented the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said, hey, if you welcome me, you're actually welcoming the father. This is his work. This is his kingdom. And for uh, Colossians 1.13 reminds us that we've been transferred into the kingdom of the son God loves. This is the kingdom of God in his work. And the priority of Christ is that we would understand the work of his kingdom. Now, final episode is in verses 38 through 49 of chapter 9. And we close with this. Jesus offers some warnings that helps us to see his priority for us. And Jesus, uh, when, when John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting a demon out in your name. We tried to prevent him because he was not with us. Jesus said, don't hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able to speak evil of me afterwards. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives a cup of water to drink to someone in my name, they will not lose his reward. Jesus is now emphasizing something that again shows his priority. The disciples saw others ministering in Jesus' name and they said, wait a minute, they're not a part of the three or the 12. How can that, that be right? And Jesus said, leave them along. If they're not against us, they are for us. Jesus warned against a prejudice in the kingdom. Jesus said, it doesn't matter if, if they are not familiar to you, they're ministering in my name. So they are indeed 
a part of my work. Sometimes today we see expressions of the Christ and of his love in, in ways that seem unfamiliar to us. Well, that person doesn't dress like me. That church doesn't function like us. And at times we develop these dangerous prejudices about the work of the kingdom. Jesus said, don't do that. If they are not against us, they are for us. So one warning would be to show us the priority of Christ, a warning against prejudices in the kingdom. Now notice this. Jesus also said, verse 42, whoever causes a little one in my kingdom to stumble, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and for them to be drowned into the sea. So Jesus second gave a warning for us not to cause a young person, a young spiritual life in the kingdom to stumble. And at times that can happen when our behavior doesn't match the behavior of Jesus. When our thoughts and attitudes are more of ourselves than of Christ, we can cause someone to stumble. Jesus referenced the little one as those who are the most vulnerable in the kingdom, spiritually young or even physically young. But those impressionable hearts cannot be led astray because those who are supposed to be following Jesus are acting in a way not appropriate to the heart of Christ. And so Jesus said, do not cause a little one to stumble. It would be better for you that a millstone, a heavy weight, would be tied on you and you thrown into the depths of the sea. Oh, what an amazing warning. Do not cause those around you to stumble. And then there's a a, a final warning. Verse uh, Verse 43, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to go in, uh, go into heaven with one hand than into hell with two. And you see what's following there. And Jesus emphasizes a warning against unconfessed sin, a warning against the follower of Christ, allowing sin to invade their lives. And then Jesus said, for everyone will be salted with fire in that case. But salt is good. If the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt on yourselves and be at peace with one another, meaning allow the gospel of Jesus and his truth to affect your life and to live accordingly and to be at peace with others. So as chapter 9 closes, this priority shows us how we are to be on mission with Christ, empowered by him not causing others to stumble, and certainly living lives that are pure and confessed before him. This is how we join him on mission. This is how we live in response to what he has prioritized in our lives. Wow, chapter 8 and 9, we covered a lot, but we focused upon, yes, his heart, his glory, and his priority. This becomes how we move forward. I love the quote from Liz Ryan. She's a business consultant with Forbes magazine. And she said this, when companies become obsessed with making people happy, there's no productivity. But instead, when companies focus on individuals sharing the mission, then there is success. Well, that is not just a corporate principle. Jesus exercised this in the closing of chapter nine, calling us to be on mission with him so that our faith moves forward, to have his heart, to respond to his glory, and to mirror his priority. That's how we join Jesus' home mission, and that's how our faith moves forward. Wow. Thank you so much for being a part of this time of teaching today. Love you a lot. Can't wait to see you till next week. We're going to go right into chapter 10 and focus on these three emphases again, his 
his heart, his glory, his priority. Let's look at that again next week as our faith moves forward. Love you a lot. See you in a few days. God bless. Thank you.